Welcome to the Parenting with Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Alexander Inman, board certified behavior analyst, ITDS, and parent coach. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with us Ms. Debbie Osborne. Super excited. Debbie is a social worker turned lawyer who has worked with youth serving organizations for more than 40 years. She has served as a camp counselor, juvenile court probation officer, group home parent, criminal prosecutor of crimes against children, and litigation attorney advising youth serving organizations throughout the United States. Her most important challenges, however, have been parenting foster children and stepchildren. She has never had biological children, but has collected seven children and 10 grandchildren. I like that collected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's essentially what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she has put those lessons um, that her children taught her in her recent book, Raising Other People's Children, What Foster Parenting Taught Me About Being bringing together a blended family. I love that title too. Welcome, Miss Debbie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You are most welcome. I mean, when you contacted, it was just like, oh my gosh, yes, 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 because this is such an important topic. Um, I too fostered a young man. Um, my husband and I, we did for, and I, you see how I did that. I left him yes. and then at your blog, <laughs> yes. you know, with uh, having, you know, recognizing the foster fathers. <laughs> right, right. Because we just tend to go into ourselves and, you know, but yeah, I thought that was really cool that you did that. Um, yeah. So great blog people, check it out. And we'll talk more about that later. However, I want to ask you, because um, you have fostered many children, and um, I love the title of your book, Raising Other People's Children. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was a, a foster parent. I did most of my foster parenting when I was single. I uh, didn't get married until my 40s, and um, I, I joked that I, I couldn't find a free weekend. Um, e e either that or I had to wait for my husband to finish screwing up his life um, and, and clear the deck. <laughs> so <laughs> so when I, I married him, he had five kids. Only two of them were still at home. But um, the, the the experiences I had as a foster parent had taught me a lot about being a step parent. And so I was able to avoid a lot of the mistakes that I had made. And then, uh, uh, gosh, maybe 10 years into our marriage, um, one of my former foster kids hit a really bad patch and we inherited um, our foster grandchild. And that was, it was in many ways, the most difficult and challenging thing I have ever done. And I wrote this book, it was a, a COVID project, <laughs> a, a shutdown, you know, an isolation project. And a friend of mine, um, who's a, a book author kept nagging me and I finally said, okay, okay, all right. And I wrote the book really to tell my husband and other people the things that I wish I had told him before our foster grandchild moved in. Mm -hmm. um, there were lessons that I, I didn't even know I had learned because I had internalized them so much. And I just assumed that everybody knew this. 
<laughs> then when I was trying to pair out a traumatized child with another uh, adult um, and, and discovered that, you know, my loving, kind, reasonable, generous husband didn't always agree with me <laughs> and sometimes just got it flat wrong. And so, um, and I, and I found myself with him, um, trying to explain things to him in the heat of the emotion, things that I wished I had sat down and gone through or a course that we could have gone through together or a book we could have read through together before we ever embarked on the fostering journey. And that was sort of the genesis of the book, the, the stuff that I, I wish I had said, and I wish I had known. Wow. Awesome. Now I'm going to ask you to tell us, what are some of those things? <laughs> well, I think the first thing, and this is where I start my chapter, is understand that from the kid's perspective, whether we are foster parents or step parents, from the kid's perspective, we are not the people who are supposed to be there in their lives. And um, I, I think that kids have a, a deep-rooted, really a very primal desire to have their biological parents together and no matter how logical the split is no matter how you explain to them all of the reasons that they're they can't have a nuclear intact biological family it doesn't change the fact that that's what they want and so when we come into their lives no matter how kind and considerate and loving and wonderful we are their world is out of kilter and um, no matter how much they like us, you know, I, I, I tell a story of how my youngest son, um, his, his mother asked for custody and we were trying to find out which way he wanted to go. Um, and, and he was avoiding answering the question because he didn't want to sound like he was taking sides. And we weren't asking for him to take sides. We just wanted to know how to spend our resources and our time. And my husband finally said, look, just let me ask it this way. If, if you had a magic wand, what would your life look like? Mm -hmm. And and this child, he didn't hesitate. He said, well, if I had a magic wand, you and mom would be back together. And, and there was this pause. And then he looked at me very concerned mm -hmm. and said, no insult, Debbie. You and the dogs would be right next door. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this child and I were very close. We had bonded. We had a great relationship and we still do have a great relationship. And I understood it was not an insult to me. Really, if he had his way, I would be the nice, kind neighbor lady who let him play with the dogs and gave him cookies. But his mom and his dad would be together. And so we are always struggling upstream against that desire for kids and we have to give them room and time to process the fact that their world is out of kilter and it may never get back to the way it's supposed to be and they may or may not ever accept that and so the second part of that is even in spite of their tendencies and in their rejection or their resistance or whatever you want to call it um we are the people who are there and we have to be the people who are not supposed to be there yes and bring all the love and all the understanding yes. and you know that comes with it um, because you know what i found out 
I think I probably knew it, but it just hit home for me. No matter what, how beautiful the situation is that a child is going into, they're still traumatized leaving, even yes. if it's a traumatic situation, they're still traumatized leaving that situation because that's where, you know, like you said, with that magic wand, mom and dad are, or, you know, the people who they grew up with that, you know, who bonded and loved them, that's where they are. Right, right. That That is where they are. And we have to, we have to wait for them to adjust to that. And in the process, and this is so incredibly hard for all of us, we have to understand that our commitments are, they're one-way commitments. We have to love and care about these kids regardless of how they respond to us. And we have to be who we are regardless of how they react to that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I call it, um, I don't call it this in my book, but I, I've developed this. Uh, I mentioned some on my blog. I call it being like gravity. You mm. know, um, our kids can ignore gravity. They can fight against it. They can complain about it. But gravity really doesn't care. Right. <laughs> it, it is there. It does what it does. Yeah. And eventually they have to accept it or not. Yeah. But gravity still just keeps doing what it does. Now, of course, gravity can be very cruel and we we don't want to be quite that logical and quite that cruel but we still have to be that consistent yes yes and you know I found that too because in the beginning well because my foster son I met him when I was working at a school so I tell people you know I joke with them I took my work home with yeah, me. <laughs> right and yeah I, I've heard a lot of stories about that and it was funny because when I when he came is the um, child protective people, they brought him over. And um, when he came in, you know, I was Miss Teresa or ma'am. And my husband was immediately daddy. And I thought uh -huh. well, that was really interesting because, you know, I he I guess he associated me with school where I worked with. Right. Him. And it was just funny. So I could, you know, people laugh, but I was like, you know what? That's just fine. At least he's not calling me, you know, some, any other name and it doesn't matter. He felt right. safe because when he saw me, he's like, oh, you live here. And he came to me and hugged me. I mean, it went downhill for a while after that, because I mean, the reason I was called to the school, it does. Was there was a crisis, you know, and right. sadly the crisis was him. They needed help managing him. And, um, but over time, I mean, it was really interesting. Like he called, he started calling me mom. And the most awkward thing I think for me though, was the day I took him to visit his mom and he was mm -hmm. on his mom's lap calling her mommy and then calling me mom. And I was just like, cause he said it and I didn't even hear him. And his mom yeah. said, mom, what I said, oh, you know, sorry, baby, I didn't hear you. And, you know, and I was just like wondering how did she feel that, you know, hearing him call me mom. And I, it was, it's such a, it's like no man's land. Right. Right. It's, it's very hard. It's very tough for the kids. Um, I don't um, think that, uh, well, maybe one of my um, foster kids called me mom, the rest of including my stepkids have all called me Debbie, um, which is fine. Uh, you know, I, my role has always been, I don't respond to insults, but otherwise I don't care. And so, and, you know, my, especially my stepkids, um, they have a mom right? and it, it it's not me. 
um, I, I have always said to them, yeah, I'm not your mother, but, but you are my sons. And that's just a a way I've always signaled. This is a a one-way commitment here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm committed to this family and, um, doesn't really matter who, who else they have in their lives. I'm, I'm still here. Right. Yes. And I think children really need to know that for oh, that yeah. safety, right? For trust and right. safety. And um, some of the other things that you mentioned in your trauma blog, because without that, I mean, who are they? Where are they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it It is really tough. And kids will, they will test that commitment. And one of the other things I have to talk about is, you know, it, it, it's unlimited love, but it's not an unlimited commitment. And the the reason for that is, it, it, you as a therapist can expound on this a whole lot um, more learnedly than I can, but unlimited commitments are not healthy. We we have to have healthy boundaries. Um, you know, my, my husband and I have, have made a vow till death do us part, but we both know that if one of us starts running guns for the mafia or becomes abusive or whatever, that, that that's a boundary on our commitment and we're done. Um, And with kids, you, you have to be very clear about, look, if this is what will get you kicked out until you clean up your act. Um, You know, I, when I was a, a, I was a federal prosecutor when I was a, a, uh, first started as a foster parent and I just said to kids look I I can't have drugs in the house I it, I, it will cost me my livelihood so um, hard drugs in the house we have to find somewhere for you until you're willing to give it up and and but I always kept that open it wasn't a you'll get kicked out it was a you go somewhere else until mm. and um, I, I have, uh, you know, two of my seven kids right now, they're estranged from us for, for their choice, their reasons. And we have just said, we love you. We're here whenever you want to come back. Um, but, but you always have to set those boundaries because strong relationships require, you, you protect them with strong boundaries and it's a matter of respect and self-respect and modeling and a whole lot of reasons that you have boundaries with kids, but that doesn't change how much you care about them and how much you're willing to um, love them. And you may not always be able to help them. You know, you may have to say, sorry, no more money mm-hmm. or, or any other number of limits. Yeah. Um, but uh, that still is, you still need to end that with, but we're always here whenever you want to make whatever choice right but if you really cared you'd give me that money (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah and that's yeah I I remember I had a conversation with my youngest son one time about a friend of his whose mom was constantly bailing him out of trouble and and uh, this that and the other and I just said to him one day I I hope you understand I love you too much to ever do that to you and I don't think he quite understood, but a few years later, when his friend had gone way down a bad road because he was so used to getting bailed out, my son finally said, I, 
I get it now. And I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. And that is so important because some parents feel guilty putting in boundaries, which I'm like, you should feel guilty not putting in those. Not putting in boundaries. Long term, it's so bad for your kids to to not not have consequences for their decisions because in the real world, there are always consequences. And and these kids grow up when the real world hits them with the consequences, then they start playing the victim. I don't want to say playing the victim. It's, it's real. They start feeling like they're victimized. And feelings of victimhood are just um if that's your becomes your go-to coping mechanism then you're simply not going to succeed exactly and i want to expand on that a little bit because then how do people know that they're a victim right we're talking about that but there are people who <laughs> are living in victimhood but they don't even yeah. realize it because they don't know the language of victimhood well, I think our, our culture in many ways encourages victimhood. I, I had one of my um, foster kids, I was saying, well, you, you say you want to go to college and, and I don't care. I never push college on my kids these days. Um, it, it's no longer the um, uh, gateway that it used to be to success. And so I said, but you say you want to go to college. And if this is a goal that you want, then you have to have good grades. You have to work a little harder to get there. And this child said, oh, no, 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 no. I will write a killer essay about how my dad deserted us. My mom became a drug addict. And now I live with these old people who just don't understand me. And, and, uh, and said, I, I have enough victim points to make up for bad grades. And I have never forgotten that. Of course, it didn't work out. <laughs> they didn't get into college, had to go another route because victim points weren't quite as powerful as that child thought they were. But just the very fact that there's a phrase for it and that my kids know, I've heard it since then. Um, let me just go count up my victim points. And it it's, it is incredibly um, it, it's just incredibly detrimental, especially with kids who've suffered trauma, because you don't get many more victim points other than actually being traumatized. And and for some kids, that's part of healing. You know, they have to go through and realize they're not responsible for what happened to them. They were victimized. But if we leave them there, believing that the system is rigged against them, that everybody is going to um, be against them because of whatever victimhood status they take on, then they will just stay there. And, and we are, we're not doing our jobs when we leave our kids there. No, no. And I mean, I hear it all the time. It's like, they did this to me. <laughs> Nobody can do anything to you. Like, you know, if you don't receive it, it cannot be done to you. And, right. um, you know, it just, I, I just struggle with, trying to help people understand that. And sometimes it's the parents that I work with that I try, well, oh, yeah. you know, they did this to me when I was that, and they did this as like, sweetie, you have children now. And it's time that we realize that life happens for us, not to us, you know? Right. And um, just what are the lessons in that for you? Like, let's look at those lessons. What have you learned? What Who have you become because of that? And let's move forward. 
how are you good? It, it's almost like, and I see this more with kids because that's who I work with. I don't, I don't work with adults um, like you do, although I, in my profession, I work with adults. But most of the time I see my kids and, and some adults, it, it, the analogy I use is they're, they're in this hole. And we all recognize that they're starting in a hole and they need to get out of the hole. But instead of working on getting out of the hole, they are just digging deeper. And then when people like me and you throw them a ladder down, they say, oh, no, 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 no. Ladders don't work for me. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> and and I'm thinking, but but what else other than a ladder? How else are you going to get out of this other than just keep digging? Right. Which I mean, the and the the more you dig, the worse your situation gets. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Because a lot, and the, I find to a lot of people, pray and hope instead of actively doing something. Right. You know, um, yeah. It's just for me, it, it's sad. It really is. And right. we just, I want to figure out a way to empower parents to help them because, in some ways, you know, they're. I reach a lot of parents and I'm able to tell them, listen, if you don't do anything, it's only going to get worse. Your life is going to get more difficult. And I use examples from my practice, you know, and, but there are those parents who are like, you know, thinking that, well, they'll be different, just like your child, you know? <laughs> right. Right. So that, well, you know, a, a lot of the hope and pray, it's very comfortable for us. And it, it's not as painful as making changes. It certainly is not as difficult as moving forward. Um, moving forward a lot of times for our kids requires uh, dealing with failure because they try things and they don't work and it feels like a failure and it just it just adds to their failure. And I think sometimes we as parents, because we are so risk averse, and we don't want to do the painful things that, that require change. We don't push our kids to, and we don't want them to hurt. We don't want them to feel like failures. We don't want them to, to have the same emotions that we have, but there's no other way to move forward than to do the painful work and go through the, the pain of making changes. So true. And, you know, funny that you say that I was listening to a podcast this morning, um, Next Level Soul. And there was a gentleman on there talking, I think it was Dr. Martini, something he called, I can't remember his name, but I think it was that. But <laughs> he was talking about the fact that we want this life devoid of pain. We want, you know, this yeah. tale, but it's not, it's not natural. You can't yeah. have one without the other. You can't, you know, climb a mountain without walking up. You know what I mean? It's like trying to get right. to somewhere without taking any action and going through those actions. You're going to have the ebbs and the flows, the ups and the downs. Because if you don't, how will you know when you're up? <laughs> how right. will you know when right. you're down if you don't have those challenges? And those challenges also help us grow and become resilient, which is what we want from our children as well as well. And, and you don't learn things without figures. If, if you look at, at uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX, you know, how many rockets they built that never made it off the launch pad. And then the ones that only made it a little way off the launch pad. But each time 
they looked at, they didn't look at it as a failure. They looked at, okay, this didn't work. What went wrong? Now we have to figure out. And by, by learning in the real world, um, you, you learn the right way to do things. And that's just, that's unavoidable. It is. I mean, problem solving, that's all it is, right? We're figuring out how to solve problems. It's not that. And I don't like to look at it as failure either, because again, like you said, it's, you know, figure out what could we do differently next time instead of sitting in this, oh, I failed. What could we do differently? You know, there's the story of Thomas Edison who tried 10,000 times before he created the light bulb and people asked him, well, how does it feel to fail 10,000 times? And he said, well, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I failed. I found out 10,000 ways that it didn't work, Right. (laughs) but he didn't give up. He did, you know, um, we would have to wait a lot longer. I mean, I'm sure somebody would have figured it out eventually, but he wouldn't have been the one if he had given up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's how we learn. And that's how our kids learn what they're good at. You know, if, if, if you're really bad at, at sports in PE, then it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you shouldn't become a professional athlete. You might should look at drama club or robotics club or something else. And that's what we need to keep saying to our kids is, well, yeah, you still have to do PE because it's required, but let's look at something else that you might enjoy better. Maybe marching band. Maybe I always was involved in amateur theater and I loved that because there's so many different ways for people to get involved. It's not just the actors, but it's the the set designers and the costumers and the lighting and the, there's a lot of different skills that go into it. Um, building that camaraderie and so there's a lot of different ways that our kids can succeed but they won't really know until they try absolutely so true and you know it made me think of a young lady I met uh, earlier this week a new client of mine she's six and loves gymnastics is amazing at it and told her mom she's a gymnast and her mom was like you know thinking to herself gymnastics is so expensive and can she, why won't she? Right. I said listen if that's who she is then that's who she is you know you cannot change her because if you have put her in drama and she may not like it and she'll resent you for getting her out of gymnastics and putting her in something else right allow her to operate in her gift because at least she she found her gift. I didn't know what my gifts were until I was much older. <laughs> well, the other thing is that may just be her gift for now. Right. You know, yeah. when, when she hits nine or 10 or heaven help us all puberty, then she may decide, especially, you know, puberty does terrible things to gymnast bodies. <laughs> it just, it just, <laughs> Puts everything off balance, changes the center of gravity. But but kids also, and she's, you know, at six years old, she's going to be trying on other identities, um, maybe, and, and just go with the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's some people who figured out early, like my brother, when he was six, he wanted to be a police officer. And he just recently retired from being a police officer, <laughs> you awesome. know, he was in it for 30 something years doing all the different, you know, I didn't realize there were so many different positions and all that, but oh, he yeah. did it yeah. and, you know, retired in his fifties. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I, 
I, it, see, my family has, I was just talking to my cousin the other day about how one of our cousins has done the same thing for 30 years, but this particular cousin and I, I, I have tried different things. I went to college with the plan to be a doctor and then a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And then I hit organic chemistry and felt um, the call of God to go into a different major. And um, I worked as a teacher. I was a speech major. I went to was a social worker then I went to law school I've done several different jobs as a lawyer I I joke that I have career ADD <laughs> my my cousin um had a stand as a photographer and then an acupuncturist and now she's managing um a, a family-owned store so you know there's there's you this is the other thing it's a lot of our kids get completely frightened about the idea of having to decide things for the rest of their life. And I just say, no, just decide for the next six months. Just just decide how you want to spend your summer. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because for me, it wasn't even six months is I am like you. I done several things. I mean, I was a caterer, hairdresser, computer repair. I thought I wanted to be a psychologist and I was like, I'll be 26 when I graduate. And it just seemed (laughs) like it was just a lot of time. And, you know, I've done the social worker thing, worked in juvenile justice. And my um, sister-in-law would always tell me, she's like, you know, like you're going to be going to school forever. I said, and that's okay, because I'm not asking you to pay for it. Um, (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I've done so many things and I'm just like, listen, I, I, bound. I became a BCBA um, in my 40s and I'm loving it, you know, because I finally found what I want to do when I grow up. Right. Right. You know, so yeah, I really agree with you. There's just some of us who, you know, like you said, I like that career ADD. Um, (laughs) Yes. My husband accuses me of having ADD. I have undiagnosed ADD. Well, my doctor told me <laughs> to the criteria. I just refused to do the medication. So, oh um. well, yeah. <laughs> I just just because the doctor says so doesn't mean that I have to pay attention to it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm functioning. Um, That's right. But yeah, and I just say that too. You know, like so. And there are many things that I thought I would do well at that I didn't do well at, and. I use that with, you know, the children I work with and tell them, listen, it's okay. We all fail. And sometimes yes. I make mistakes on purpose just so they could see how to handle making a mistake. Right. Right. And, and that's, we, the other thing that I, I think with, with our, our kids, particularly traumatized kids, we, we try to give them self-esteem through words mm-hmm. and, you know, we spent what the eighties and nineties with this whole self-esteem movement and, words of affirmation and and there's a grain of truth there you you can't give kids a steady diet of negative things and and expect them not to believe it eventually but we have discovered that giving them positive words does nothing the social research it's in now you know the social science research on on kids and self-esteem you cannot impart self-esteem the way you can impart cough medicine Um, the only way for kids to have positive and high self-esteem is to find something they succeed at and the only way they find something they succeed at is by failing and getting back up and trying again 
and stop helping them get up. Let them get up on the oh. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I talk in my book about the doctrine of logical consequences, which is finding safe ways for kids to face the consequences of what they've done and and make them logical. You know, you, you can ground kids or various things, but it works better. For example, I, I had one of my kids who constantly missed the bus. Mm-hmm. And I give allowances to kids because I gives if, if particularly if kids are are motivated by having spending money um that gives me something to take back <laughs> that, it's that's less painful and so with this kid who kept missing the bus I finally said look you know taxis cost 20 bucks to from from the house to school um, I will give you the friends and family rate of five bucks every time that I have to drive you to school because you miss the bus and because it's taking time out of my schedule. You know, I I could do all of this, this lecturing if I wanted to, but it was so much more effective to say mom's taxi service is five bucks a pop. And, you know, that mostly solved the problem. Awesome. Yes. And that's the thing. Everybody's afraid for their child to face a natural consequence. And It's not going to help. If we keep it artificial for them, they will never learn. And then when they hit the world of consequences, they're like, oh, they don't know what to do. Right, right. They really don't. And and if we can do it within our family, you know, at, at one time when we had our, the, the foster child with us and then we had a, a another family member who was um, living in our basement temporarily, we had six people in the house. And so everybody, of course, uh, this was, uh, I always made my kids responsible for their own laundry fairly early on in the preteens, start teaching them that. Well, the only way to get six people through the laundry, uh, rotate in and out of the laundry room on a regular basis with, without causing problems was we just assigned everybody a day mm-hmm. that they could do their laundry. And if they missed their day, they either had to wait a week or negotiate with somebody else. Those were the only two options. They kept coming to me saying, I need to do my laundry. Well, you know, it's so-and-so's day. You got to negotiate it with so-and-so. I'm I'm not involved. It's between you and the person whose day it is. And, um, and I remember one of my kids said, but he's charging me money. Or I think it was money. And I said, it's his day. He can... He can negotiate ever how he wants to. It's not my day. It's his day. It's between you and him. And, um, you know, that kid learned to do the laundry on their day. Yeah, that is awesome. What an amazing lesson. And they learn negotiation skills and they learn to wait, yes. they learn to schedule. They, you know, they may have had to budget for that. I mean, that is so many lessons in that. <laughs> Right. Well, and and we learned, for example, with chores, you know, one of the kids had missed taking the trash out. And I, this is a logical consequence. I learned this from my mom, which was, um, and I think it's, it's a very common one. I just bagged up the kitchen trash and put it in the kid's room. And um, the theory being, I want it out of my way and we'll put it in your room where you can deal with it. And um then you can just sit here for the week. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so the kid came and said, but, but I was out of town. And I said, well, I know you were, but well, I'm not supposed to do it when I'm out of town. I said, mm, no, it's your job. You have to get it done. Well, how do I get it done when I'm out of town? Well, you could ask me, 
instead of taking it for granted. Or you could get somebody else to, you could trade chores. You could get somebody else to do it. it. There's many ways, and I'm happy to walk you through the many ways that you can get something done when you're out of town. But it is still your job, no matter where you are. And again, you know, that was just one of those, he had a week to think about it while the trash was sitting in his room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I would not thought of that. Now parents have some handy tools that they can use. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It needs to be tied to the offense. That's the, that's for me, that's the creativity of it. How can I make this logically connect so that it's, a, it has to be a safe consequence, you know, with uh, the analogy I use is, is let's say you have, uh, again, my kids, I've, I made them responsible for their lunches at, at a fairly early age. If they didn't like the school lunch, they could fix and take their own lunch. So <clears throat> if the kids forgot their lunch, then they just had to wait or do without or eat the school lunch. However, if you've got a kid who has food insecurity, then you can't do that consequence can trigger a whole lot of trauma responses that you don't want to go into. Right. So that's why they have to be logical, but they also have to be safe consequences. Right. And that depends on the kid. Right. Yeah. And see, that's one of the reasons I'm not big on timeout because what is it saying? You get ostracized <laughs> because you didn't do this thing, you know, have to be a consequence. And, you know, people might scoff and look at me funny, but there, we were working on toilet training a two-year-old and she looked at mom, she looked at me, she smiled, she looked down and she peed on the floor right in front of the toilet. Instead of sitting, she peed on the right. and she was non-vocal too. And um, so mom, but she knew (laughs) she was making a point. Exactly. So mom was communicating something. Yes, she certainly was, you know, and mom asked me, well, what should I do? I said, well, get a cloth and have her pick, have her clean it up. She goes, but she'll get it on her hands. I said, well, you've got soap and water and it's her, you know, it'll be okay. Did she ever do it again? No, because that was a natural and logical consequence for peeing on the floor and looking at us and knowing that she was doing right. it, she was about to do it. She made it clear, right. I'm going to pee on these floor, pee on this floor, people. And I, you know, we had her clean it up and she never did it again because there was a consequence. And and it it was not only a logical consequence, it was a life lesson of you have to clean up after yourself. Absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, I have a lot of kids, um, you know, they would spill something or break something. And and, uh, particularly with traumatized kids, they would expect some sort of, they were always, a lot of them were afraid of physical abuse when they dropped something or whatever. And that's how you learn to say to them, look, it's okay. Mistakes are made. Let's go clean this up. So you teach them that the right way to deal with it is not to panic but you don't ignore it either. Mm-hmm. You, you learn how to clean it up. Yep, absolutely. And I think our um, our foster son, he taught us that, he taught me that lesson. The first day he got here, I put dinner on the, because he said he was hungry, I put dinner on the table and he refused to eat it. And I said, well, you don't have to. I said, if you don't like it, you can ask for something else. And instead of saying that, the bowl and I don't use plastic bowls so you know because we don't we didn't have children I mean our children are grown and um he just swiped the bowl to the floor I said well now we have to clean it up and he looked at me like 
I said, yes, we will clean it up. I said, um, you won't get cut. We will clean it up. And he never did it again. If he, if there was something, if it was too much for him or he didn't feel like eating, he'd just say, I'm not hungry right now. Can I eat later? I said, absolutely. You know, but I, ta- right. I teach him that, you know, uh, to let me know I'm not hungry or can I have something else or whatever it was, instead of just thinking that he could swipe it to the floor and it will all go away. Right. There's a, there's a great, uh, this is my amateur theater background coming. There's a, a play used to be very popular. I don't know how, how many people know about it now called the miracle worker about Helen Keller and um, Annie Sullivan, who is the teacher who taught um, Helen Keller, who, who was uh, blind and, and, um, and deaf, I think. Um, but there's this pivotal scene in the play where uh, Annie Sullivan is trying to teach Helen Keller to fold her napkin and Helen Keller doesn't want to. And because her family has let her go into these rages, that's what she goes into this rage and the whole place is a mess. And when people finally come back in, you know, they're standing outside the door listening to all of this chaos and trauma. When they finally come back in, everything is a shambles. But Annie Sullivan looks at them exhausted and says, she folded her napkin. Because <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that was the goal. Because that was the goal. And and then she made her start help cleaning stuff up, you know. Um, but we as parents sometimes forget, you know, we negotiate with the kids. There really is all of this, I think, very bad parenting advice of of um, letting kids make too many decisions. Uh, yeah, we need to listen to our kids and we need to let them go with where they want to be and be a gymnast or a ballerina or whatever they want to be at the moment. But at the same time, they are kids and we do have a lot more life experience. And there's just some things they simply don't know and are not ready to process. And that's our job to do that for them. Absolutely, because otherwise it's putting so much responsibility on, like you said, a child who has not been on this earth as long as we have, and we're having issues, but we expect we put all this responsibility on them and wonder why they engage in problem behavior. Why are we having challenges? Well, they're not ready for that yet. They're not mentally prepared. They're not cognitively ready for all of that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We have been chatting for a while. <laughs> yes, it has gone. It really has. Oh my goodness. I really enjoyed chatting with you, Ms. Debbie. Now, if there's well, thank one, you. You're welcome. If there's one thing you want parents to leave this moment with, what would that be? Um, that would be making an, 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 a one-way commitment to your kids being the person who's who's not supposed to be there, but still being there. And then understanding that um, that kids have agency. They may reject you, but you need to be there anyway. Yes, love them through it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, thank you so, so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening on Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I hope this has been a blessing to you as it has been to me, Parent with Confidence.